Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Hebs Magazine. Today on the show, we're happy to welcome back Carl Stern from WhenItWasCool.com. We're going to start with some comics TV chat. If you haven't seen the first episode of Moon Knight, feel free to skip ahead to around the 15-minute mark if you don't want to be spoiled. We're going to talk about what we liked and did not like about the first episode, where we think the series might go, Carl's love for the Moon Knight character from the comics and how that's evolved over time, DC TV versus Marvel TV, and other things such as that. We're going to move on to the comics chat. We're going to talk about some of the old comics that Carl has been covering on his podcast of late, print versus digital, uh, studying popular culture and how that relates to comics, and a bunch of other things along that lines. Then we're going to get into the meat of the wrestling chat. We're going to talk about not much of the current scene, mainly about old stuff. We're going to talk about covering wrestling, is wrestling overanalyzed, the dangers of relying on your sources too much to shape your information. And then we're going to talk about some of the quote-unquote lost Southeastern footage that Carl saw as a kid and really did not get to see again until it recently resurfaced on YouTube. We're going to talk about Heel Bob Armstrong, the original Midnight Express, uh, the Fullers, the Welches, and all kinds of things like that. I also want to make mention of the fact that I was on Between the Sheets last week talking about March 1984, including the angle in Mid-South with the birthday cake and the slap that started the last stampede. So make sure you go over there and check out that pod. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. I'm always happy when our guest today finds time to do the show because he's a very busy man. And for once, we're not going to start with the wrestling talk. He's been doing a lot of comics chat on his podcast network, so I figured we'd start with some old-school four-color chat. And one of his favorite characters now has its own TV show. So we're going to talk about that, too. Glad to chat once again with... From when it was cool... The head honcho himself, Carl Stern. How's it going, Carl? Mark, doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on again. And uh, yeah, I mean, hey, we got some uh, we got some comic related pop culture stuff to discuss. I am excited about it. Uh, you know, I the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know how you're feeling about it over the last little while, but I I hit a point of fatigue with it. I think when it come around to like. Uh, you know, that last double double jointed Avengers movie and everything. Like honestly, after that, I've had a lot of problems, a lot of trouble getting back interested in it. I, I just and I love Marvel. I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think every movie in there has been at least something relatively valuable, but I've had a hard time getting excited about it. But I'm kind of getting a little excited here about Moon Knight. Uh, one of my favorite characters to begin with. I know it's weird to have a moon not be your favorite character, but it really has been for, for many, many years. And so this may be the thing that drags me back in a little bit. Well, you're talking to somebody who loves uh, B and C level characters. So I'm never going to, you know, I don't know if I could ever actually, I mean, I love villains more than heroes and I love my silver age villains. You know, I love, yeah. I love Pacepot Pete, and I love the Psycho Pirate, and I love, you know, As like Festos all the... Man. <laughs> yeah, and the... Man, yeah. 
and the flash villains and stuff like that. So yeah, I've, I I kind of agree with the movies. It's like I think I kind of like the TV show concept better almost because it's actually more like it's more like reading a comic book because it's serial and it's short and digestible. Yep. So, and especially now that the way TV works is, you know, everything's an arc. So you're going to have a beginning, middle and end. It's not just, you know, it's not say the Batman TV show where it's just, you know, the villain of the week and there's not really anything to go from week to week. You know, these things are all meticulously planned out and, you know, they're also all looking forward to tying into the movies and tying into the other shows and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know, in a way it's more like a comic book. The t- to me, the TV shows are all like almost more like the comic book universe than the movies are because, you know, you get a movie every two years. Oh, I mean, now you get two a year, but it, you know, it was like you get a movie every year, maybe every other year. So, you know, like I said, but yeah, um, as we are recording this, uh, the first episode of Moon Knight came out yesterday. And so I guess we're, we're going to, uh, we may or may not be spoilery. Uh, I don't know. There, there's not really a whole lot of spoilery stuff in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one, yeah, first one, I, I was thinking, I've already recorded a review of it to, to go up Monday on, on at when it was cool. And I was thinking, you know, of course I gave the standardized spoiler warning, but I was thinking, does the first episode really spoil anything? I mean, it's just kind of really setting up like, and it's very confusing. And I say that in a good kind of way, it was meant to be, it was written to be confusing. So I don't even know that, you know, you can't even spoil that much about it, but, uh, I thought it was tremendous. I thought it was, and it's, look, I am one of those old school people who are like, well, that's not my Moon Knight. That's not my Boba Fett, whatever. And I think that, you know, usually I'm coming from that direction. Well, this was definitely not my Moon Knight, but I really like this Moon Knight. I really like the presentation they're giving here. And, that's saying something because generally I like it to at least hold relatively close to the source material. And I guess if there's any sort of spoiler warning I would give is that this does not hold that close to the, to the, the comic book material. There are general threads that are similar to the comic book, but a lot of stuff way different. But I think it was all in a very positive way. I think there are things to look forward to. But there are a lot of things in this first episode that I guess, I don't know if you would call them nitpicks or not, but uh, one, this, so far, this, this Stephen Grant might be like the, like, milksoppiest protagonist we've seen in a comic book show in quite a while. I mean, I don't even know if nebbish is quite the word, but... uh, I'm sure that's just because he, that's going to be a way to contrast with Spectre. Mm-hmm. And then maybe once they eventually merge into Moon Knight or however they're going to do it. And two, it's just, this is a little annoying thing. The, the, the heavy handed use of the pop songs. Yeah. yeah. Drove, drove me crazy, especially in the, in the chase scene. It was like, okay, we get it. You know what I mean? I, I realize everything has to have, you know, 
a sort of a retro song that you have to fit in now. But it's just like there was like three or four of them all in a row. And it was just like, okay, I get it. But uh, I mean, to me, I think the best thing in the first episode was Ethan Hawke, who again oh, is yeah. Yeah, who's yeah. A, who's a relatively minor Moon Knight villain, I think is probably fair to say. Not that, you know, he doesn't really have a bunch of A-list villains anyway. But, you know, they they took a relatively minor villain and tweaked him and made him pretty darn creepy, certainly in the first episode. Yeah, see, look, hey, and I've followed Moon Knight for decades, love it. I'll be honest with you, like, I could... I, had, I thought this was a completely new character. Like, that's how minor this was. Only later was I reminded that, oh, this was actually somebody that was in Moon Knight. Was, Moon Knight's had so many different series. The, the, the character, the, the, the Moon Knight reinvention is almost as schizophrenic as the character is. I mean, it just, uh, every couple of years, you get a new Moon Knight relaunch and their take on it and whatever. And this is really yet another one of those. But... I totally agree with where you're coming from on the music. I thought the chase scene was great, actually, as far as chase scenes go. I thought that was really good. It's just so manic. This episode was like, you know, anxiety-inducing you all the way through it. If you look, can you imagine, Mark, if you did not even know Moon Knight and his backstory, how confused you would be watching this first episode? You'd have no clue what was going on. But I thought it was having known what Moon Knight's about and having known the multiple personality thing, uh, I thought it was pretty clever. I, I hope it maintains that same level. I mean, it's only six episodes long, so they're going to have to, whatever story it is, they're going to have to get to telling it. And uh, I thought Ethan Hawke was great. I thought, very impressed with that character. One of the things that I was reading about uh, the last couple of days is, and something I kind of wondered too, is how they're going? How exactly they're going to explain the Egyptian "quote unquote" gods? Because in the Marvel universe, at least the gods we've seen so far aren't really gods; they're actually aliens. You know, yeah. like with the the Asgardians. So the question is: It's like, are these Egyptians going to be aliens too? I guess. Well, you know, you you got to consider also the Eternals kind of were that too. They were kind of, at least in antiquity, you know, mankind saw them as that. So it could be either or. And honestly, I don't care which they go, which they go with uh, is fine. I thought they made a really good looking Khonshu in this. I thought that character looked particularly good live action. Yeah, certainly the one thing that I've liked so far is is the set design. You know, all the museum stuff looked really cool. And, you know, uh, I guess even that sort of, that European village looked kind of neat. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's funny, there's already one theory, because people can't leave well enough alone, they have to fantasy book these shows, that people are already uh, saying that could be Latveria. <laughs> yeah, and it's hey, like maybe I don't know. <laughs> well, it's just like they're not going to backdoor Latveria, and probably in this show, you know, just like they weren't going to have Reed Richards randomly show up in an episode of Wandavision. Right. Yeah. You know, that's just that's probably not how these things are going to work. It's like 
yeah, in the movies, you know, like it certainly looks like, you know, we could be getting Patrick Stewart in the Doctor Strange movie playing Xavier, maybe. At least that's what they're teasing. But, you know, I don't think they'd like all of a sudden they're going to slip somebody into one of the television. Now, they could have done it in in What If, maybe, since that was a cartoon and they could do whatever they wanted. But, yeah, I'm sure we're probably not going to see the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom until we actually get... Now, again, you know, the X-Men may show up in Doctor Strange, and, you know, that's a popular theory that that's how they're going to introduce the X-Men into the Marvel Universe is, you know, via the multiverse. Yeah, I I, I so much enjoyed this episode of Moon Knight. I, I think I'm going to rewatch the first episode again, and I never do. I never rewatch this stuff ever. Uh, but I think I'm going to go back because I'm betting there's a lot of little Easter eggs I probably missed. Yeah, the I, way in yeah I've, I've read at least one or two articles that quote-unquote listed all the Easter eggs, which... Yeah, I, wanna, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, one of those and see if I can spot them. Yeah, a lot of them are are just references to the characters like the woman who plays his boss at the museum is a reference to somebody that appeared in one of the books once. And the guy, the living statue guy is supposed to be Crawley, you know, who's like a long time supporting character. And the funny thing is, if people haven't seen this is apparently in the museum scene, there's a, close-up of a qr code yes yeah, and if that. and if you scan that qr code you actually get a free digital copy of of werewolf by night where he first appeared right yeah issue 32 that's right yeah so that's pretty cool I, i'm i always have felt like marvel was uh was incorrectly Riding Moon Knight in by by taking him into the you know for a long time in the 1990s he was very much just your street level superhero. I mean he was teaming up with Spider Man and Punisher and Ghost Rider and all these people all the time, Daredevil and whatever. And I I never thought that was a good fit to him. Nor did I feel like this just over heavy handed uh, exploration of mental illness was a was a good way to explore Moon Knight either. I always thought he best. Fit is kind of a, a horror type character, you know, hunting werewolves and things like that. I, I always felt like the Bill Sienkiewicz run was kind of uh, more in vain of what Moon Knight should be. And this, this actually just steps it up a notch. I mean, with way more Egyptian iconography and stuff like that, and certainly the look, I really like this look a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a different character. I mean, it may be using the same names largely, Although I gathered that Layla and Marlene are, are stand-ins for one another, like they're going to use that character instead of Marlene and as the love interest. But nevertheless, I, I think this I, it's, it's, they're using the same names, but this is really a different character, and I'm kind of digging it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I had some quibbles, and I thought it was slow. But I mean, that's one of the. I was, you know, I talked to somebody who. Uh, is was like a a critic, and they got uh, the first four episodes to screen. You know, which normally you don't do. And you know, it's sort of been said that's because this is kind of you kind of need that many episodes to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And certainly, 
you know, after this first episode, you can definitely see it looks like there's going to be a slow build. Yeah. I'm, you know, I mean, we didn't I mean, you know, we got, you know, 10 seconds of the costume, if that, at the <laughs> end. You know, and that's only the, the regular costume. You know, we haven't even seen the, the yeah, Mr. Mr. We haven't seen Mr. Knight yet. So, and again, that's going to be curious how they're, you know, going to do, you know, like, I think we all kind of think maybe that this might lean heavily on the Jeff Lemire series from a couple of years ago. Right. Yeah. Which I wasn't even particularly a fan of, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of elements of that here. And I think they've, they've left out the parts so far that I dislike about that series and kind of incorporated more than I do. So yeah, I, I wasn't, wasn't a big fan of that particular series, but this so far, so far, so good. Yeah, definitely. Um, like we said, you've been doing um, a lot of comic stuff on on your pod lately. Um, did that come from any, or is it just something you wanted to go back to? Because I know you've always done comics on the show, but you've been doing a lot of retro reviews, including like a lot of gold and silver and bronze age stuff of late. Yeah, you know, it. it it's more of a... I have a lot of things that interest me and, but not all, but not continuously. Like I'll get kind of bored with things for a while. And I like the variety of when it was cool. I don't like it for all to be one thing. You know, I could talk about classic rock music forever, literally forever with anybody about, you know, any, I could go on that forever, but people, you know, kind of get tired of that. They, and I've noticed at our website, uh, you know, that's best done in small doses. Uh, so I'll be interested in that for a while, and I'll try to put out a few podcasts on it and stuff, and then I'll try to rotate around uh, to other things like, you know, retro TV shows and stuff, and then sometimes I'm just, you know, so bored or can't, I'm not really interested in it. Uh, and then comics are just a thing that's been all around my whole life for me. And with comics, there's such a, a variety you have. I mean, you've got all of you know, since 1939 worth of history to go through. There's something out there. There's thousands and thousands of titles. So if you're bored of one thing or one era, switch to another. I mean, I recently had a review show about the 1990 Todd McFarlane Spider-Man series, whereas we had been talking about Golden Age stuff. And I've been trying to hit like some key issues and first appearances and, and kind of things like that, things that maybe people have always heard about but maybe didn't know that much about one i've got coming up uh, next week is a review of superman versus muhammad ali you're talking about something that spans popular culture i mean when i was in kindergarten that comic book came out there was no bigger star in the world than muhammad ali i love muhammad ali and superman well why wouldn't you make a comic book crossover of that? Of course you would. Well, how many people's actually read that comic? How many people you think you know that probably read that? Probably not many. Well, let's let's go through it. Let's see what was actually in there. It was it was you know it, it was actually very very comic booky, <laughs> very comic. I had a lot of fun doing that. So I, I kind of like. It's not that there's a, a comic book renaissance, so to speak, here. In, it's just that. After a while, I like to lay something down and pick something else up. It may be G.I. Joe next week. It may be the $6 million man. It may be something. Who knows? Uh, but I like to keep, because I feel like if it's something I'm interested in, 
that that's going to come across and and other people may really it's it's show and tell is what honest to goodness what you do and what i do is we want other people hey here's this thing i enjoy y'all come look at this everybody can look at this and that's what we're doing and so if you're excited about it that i think makes other people i want other people to see this comic i want other people to think about moon knight and you know superman and muhammad ali and whatever i I want to show people hey look at this thing remember this thing because uh, i know mark uh, lately I've, i've kind of talked a little bit about pop culture and people I think give pop culture a, a bad rap. They think of it as superfluous. They think it, of it as shallow. They think of it as simplistic. They think of like bubblegum pop music and things like that. I would challenge people to take it more seriously in that it's the world's a tough place. Mark, you spend a lot of time on the internet. I don't know if you notice this or not, but a lot of bad stuff going on. A lot of, you know, we, we work in our everyday lives. Everybody has bills to pay. There's, gosh, we may be in the early days of World War III. Who knows? Who knows? Pop culture is what takes our, uh, it's what gives us a break from that. It's our solace. It gives us a minute to, to, to turn away from the sun for a second and just catch our breath. And uh, I think it's important. Art is important. And art can and should be fun. And uh, I think your people are disingenuous who look down at that all pretentiously and all snottily and think, oh, that's just, you know, whether it's Britney Spears or Michael Jackson or whatever, and they look down on that. And I think that's wrong. I think that's the thing that helps. That's the thing that helps get us through our lives or, or those things we can enjoy, especially if they have a sort of a, a fantasy or fantastical sort of aspect to them. Professional wrestling. Yes, it's goofy, it's garish, it's weird, and that's what we love about it. Uh, bring on the monsters, man. You know, uh, these Marvel movies and, and, and stuff like that, all this stuff helps us, you know, helps us make our way in life. You've, you've been covering pop culture for years and years, and uh, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but I think it's an important part of life that, that gets very much a, a bad rap. Well, one of the things that, that like they taught us when, uh, I mean, you know, I went to grad school to study popular culture in a department of popular, like the, at, you know, at the time, the only department of popular culture in the country. And one of the first things they hammered into us is popular culture is everything. Like it's high culture and low culture are both popular culture. And it's and some and it's fluid. I mean, people. I mean, some people would be shocked to learn, like how uh, popular to the common man Shakespeare used to be in in Elizabethan England. I mean, Shakespeare plays were for everybody. I mean, there really wasn't a stratification of popular culture. Pretty much that started with the Victorians mm-hmm. where they, you know, where they said, you know, this is for you and this is for us. And, you know, where the theater became, you know, more hoity toity and, you know, operas have always been popular. Shakespeare was popular. It, you know, it wasn't until, I mean, even in, you know, early colonial America, you know, we had all these 
traveling Shakespeare companies. You know, if you watched, if you watch Deadwood, you know, one of the seasons involves, you know, that, that troop that ends up in Deadwood that, you know, that happened in, you know, the Americas up until, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when things started to stratify, when you started, you know, this is for you and this is for you. And, you know, rich snooty people go to the theater to see plays, common people go to see sports or to go to see wrestling or whatever. But no, everything is all one. And, you know, there's no better way, hardly, to understand a culture than to look at their popular culture. Because it's like, because if something's popular, there's a reason it's popular. You know, and it's, and it evolves, you know, and art forms evolve over time. I mean, if you just look at sort of modern, you know, modern 20th century America, a lot of the quote unquote sort of indigenous popular culture we have here changes with the times and there's a reason it changed comic books went from you know superhero comics started you know in world war ii and then you know they evolved into being horror comics in the 50s and then they evolved into superheroes again and then you start getting all this other stuff you know wrestling you know you're an uh, an expert in early pioneer wrestling you know, that's virtually unrecognizable to what we call wrestling today, let alone like the wrestling we grew up with in the 80s. You know, it evolves and right. movie, you know, and movies evolved. And, you know, it's all you know, just you need, you know, you, sometimes you have to, you know, you need people who are trained or they can like look at the whole picture and try and explain it. Because sometimes, because you're in the middle of it, people don't always necessarily see uh, where stuff came from or where it's going. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, the, as it's interesting when I think about Pioneer Era wrestling. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, relatively recent history, a lot more old footage has been uncovered than ever has before for, for many, many years. Like the oldest known uh, professional wrestling footage that was out there was from 1920. It was from Madison Square Garden, Joe Stecker versus Earl Caddick for the world championship. Well, since that time, much more old stuff, even back into the 1870s, has come to light. Most of it from Europe, but and nothing like, you know, super famous but notable people these people we know of were actual professional wrestlers and stuff and we always had and perpetuated this idea and certainly i did too that oh back then you know wrestling was a real sport and there you know lots of shoot matches and and uh you know they they started working matches as a way to fleece gamblers and that's the way you know the term mark and all that came came to be and uh, had its origins in the carnivals and it was all this real very serious very you know manly kind of thing uh that started being quote fake uh when they figured out they could make money off of it well it's but people bet on this and we'll throw the match and uh, we'll all come out a winner well as more and more of that old 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 footage is found the more you realize how ridiculous it looks. Some of that stuff is way faker looking than what I, it, it kind of came through a thing. Like from the 18, 
you know, I used to think 1870s, 1880s, you know, they were largely mostly shoots and stuff. Now I'm beginning to, to come of another different opinion that that more serious style came later. It came like with Frank Gotch and, and George Hackenschmidt and stuff a little more that they kind of made it serious it up a little bit. And then it went back the other direction again. And there's always been kind of that thing in our modern era. You know, it's kind of split off into two divisions of popular culture. You have mixed martial arts. You have professional wrestling. At one point in time in the mid-1990s when UFC, like, 94, when UFC 1 uh, first came out, they were kindred spirits. They were virtually the same thing. Just one was, quote, real and one was, quote, fake. Well, now they're completely, you know, different. Nobody even compares the two very much anymore because they've, they've gone in different directions. But that again speaks of the flexibility and viability of different parts of, of popular culture. There's an audience for all of it. And one isn't any better or any smarter than the other. That's a great point you make about uh, going back to the days of the opera and the theater and, you know, the common people would do this. Yeah, you know, the truth is we all could use a little bit of all of it. I mean, there, there's, it's, it's no, it's no more, I think, highbrow to, for you to sit around and read, you know, the Fountainhead and Antlers Shrugs all day than it is to pick up a really good graphic novel that tells a really good story with both art and literature both in there. And quite frankly, in, in some of the, the more, uh, you know, verbose literature that's out there, I mean, let's just be honest. It's, 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 at points of times, it's extraordinarily boring. I, I don't know anybody who, honest to goodness, has a good time pushing through like Moby Dick and War and Peace and whatever. We've read those because we have to and we want to, you know, add that to our repertoire or something. But has anybody ever sit around and said, man, I just had the greatest time reading War and Peace. It was just the most awesome thing ever. Didn't have a, not a dull moment in there. Of course not. But at the same time, those same people will look down your nose, their nose at somebody reading a Batman graphic novel or a, a Moon Knight graphic novel or something like that. When some of that is better, or, or I wouldn't say better storytelling or whatever, obviously this, some of this stuff is, is, you know, stood the test of time for a reason, but there's still good, there are good storytelling elements there. There are memorable things. There are things that, are, that you can actually apply to your life. And even if it's not a learning moment, it's something you can enjoy. And that breath of enjoyment and happiness. People, I think, nowadays put such a low premium on happiness. Just being happy. And the world teaches us just the opposite. The world piles on us and piles on us. And as we become... Uh, more and more drudged down in in 24-hour news cycles and uh, becoming more and more aware of various mental illnesses and stuff and treating those and just people's problems in general in the world we live in, I think just the simple act of simplistic happiness with no strings attached is becoming less and less um, important. And maybe it should be more important. Maybe it should be a thing when we can find it because it's so hard now to find that moment uh, when you're oh. constantly barraged with negative news and social media and all these things that just seem like an anchor to drag us down. I don't think anybody should apologize in any way whatsoever for taking a moment and watching Tom and Jerry. You know, that's perfectly fine. Well, it's one other thing I was going to 
something that you touched on is like when I worked in comics, you know, I always used to say, you know, there's good and bad of everything and you shouldn't limit yourself. It's like, you know, people who read superhero books would like thumb their nose at independent books or manga or something like that. And vice versa, you know, the people reading like, you know, your Art Spiegelman books and things like that would say, oh, you know, look down their nose at, at superhero books. And I'm like, you know, there's good and bad and everything. You know, it's just like, it may not be your taste, but that doesn't mean you should dismiss it. You know, I mean, I would always try, you know, and then when you start having people cross over and leaving superhero books and go and do art books and vice versa, you know, now, and now you have lots of prose authors that write comics and, you know, and they go back and forth. And so it's like that line's blurred. And the thing you said about sort of uh, enjoying what you like and at, at least on a surface level, I mean, that's one thing that I've certainly evolved over time with. And I know this is kind of a, pet peeve of yours and, and certainly mine now if we like evolve into from talking about comics to talking about wrestling it's like you know i would much rather watch you know a night of of watching territorial wrestling and just enjoying it rather than nitpicking it to death you know i've certainly written my fair share of like stuff about wrestling and comics with three dollars, you know, again, I was an academic. It's like, you know, I wrote stuff about postmodernism and comics and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's like now that I'm an old man, like I'd rather just read a comic. And it's yeah. like, I would rather just like watch, you know, an episode of Memphis TV from 1982 than like, Discuss it's discuss the work rate and give it a star. You know, Amen. I have I, I have I have become you know and you know a lot of that as you've talked about on your show has sort of you know is all centers around Dave and his shift and stuff, which I've completely gone the opposite way on. It's just. Yeah, it's like, I'd rather just, I mean, I still like write about wrestling. I just don't sort of academize it anymore. Like, you know, um, I was talking to somebody, we were talking to somebody recently about sort of the foreign menace in wrestling. And this is kind of a funny talking point. Yeah, you know, I hate to bring the real world into this, but I will for a second. But people were wondering... Given what's going on in the world right now, if Mid-South Wrestling still existed, would Bill Watts be pro-Putin or would he be anti-Russia? Because Putin, you know, seems like he's carved from the Bill Watts playbook, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he's also an evil Russian. Exactly. So, so you wonder, you know, if this was it's, 19 if this was 1984, like, would who would Bill Watts' heel be? Would it be the evil <laughs> Russian, or would it be like the the soft liberal, you know, who wants to <laughs> wants to clamp down on? Probably people. not the latter. 
probably not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of an interesting discussion to it have. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So much of that stuff, I go back and I just, I get so tired of this, this, you know, this cerebral sort of um, dissection of a totally subjective thing. Like, you know, the, the star rating system, I have so turned on that. I, I am so over that. And I t- recently, I say recently, within the last several months, I, w- I, I flipped on uh, Peacock, whatever, uh, and was just like, you know, I want to just watch some, just have some moment in the background. So I put on like 1986 WWF Challenge. And I got to watching it, and I was like, this is so easy to watch. This is like easy. It doesn't require me to, I'm not judging any of this because there ain't nothing on here over half a star. Best case scenario. This doesn't require anything other than just sitting back and enjoying it. And then I thought, well, that was pretty enjoyable. And so I went in a rabbit hole of watching like late 70s, early 80s Memphis wrestling, which is among my favorite stuff to watch. And I've just got playing. I'm like, oh, this is so easy. I haven't seen a two-star match yet. But it's just so enjoyable. And so I'm like, oh, this is just so easy to consume. And uh, then just a few days ago, I saw like, I think it was maybe a a gift or something on social media or a short video piece or something. And it was highlights of Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask, which is one of the highlight all time, you know, great you know, multi-star rated matches of which the entire, you know, modern system of pro wrestling match buildings built on. And I was like, you know, obviously this is a very impressive athletic display. There, but there's lots of flips going on, man. There's, there's flips everywhere. I'm getting dizzy watching all these flips. And I, I, I certainly see the art in it. I see the art. I see the athleticism. And give me Memphis and give me Wrestling Challenge anytime because, like, it was just, it was not as much fun. It just wasn't as much fun. I could see it. I understand it. I mean, it's great. That's certainly something very few people can do. I see the influence that come from it. But, man, sometimes just give me something, something easy I can enjoy and come away understanding. I I understand. I know exactly what happened on that show. I know who hates who and why they hate each other. Why does Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask hate each other? I don't know. I don't do they. I don't know. They seem to spin around each other a lot. I don't know. Here's something I wrote recently. I don't know if I was talking to you about it or somebody else. But you know how, uh, in hindsight, that one of the reasons wrestling became what it is, for mostly worse, but maybe better, is that arguably the person with the worst territory ended up winning the wrestling war. Like amazing. The, yeah. The, the, I mean, if you sort of look, just look at again, wrestling aesthetics, which is subjective, but you know, if we were to take 1982, 1983, and we watched say seven territories, like the like sort of the bigger territories like WWF, Crockett, Florida, Memphis, Continental, Southeastern Continental, 
Mid-South, world-class AWA. Portland. Of all those, you could strongly argue that, that the WDF was the worst product. You know, the, but again, this is sort of subjective. And Vince won, you know, largely because, in my opinion, because he was in New York and the Northeast and made connections and a bunch of other things. And, you know, the failure of all the other promoters, blah, blah, blah. But wrestling has been harmed by him winning the war. Now, this isn't a war, but can you say the same thing that... Dave becoming the number one wrestling media person, historian, critic, whatever you call, has actually been bad for wrestling, too, because we've had 30 years of Dave's preferred style becoming what people think is the right way for wrestling to be. This is something I've put a lot of thought into. It's just amazing you bring this up because this has been a somewhat of a talking point I've heard, I've heard over time. Uh, make no mistake about it. You know, Dave got where Dave is through hard work, through being very good at what he does. And you're exactly right, though. His preferred, the thing he gave the the most uh, critical analysis to, is the thing that won out in the end. Now, uh, are they one and the same? I don't know. I think it it, it did help. Certainly the people who have been reading him for many years, who became the performers of today. I mean, let's look. I mean, we know for sure there, there are people who literally work their matches for him to see what rating he's going to give them, to see what coverage he's going to give them and stuff. And so, of course, just like in WWF, WWE has been criticized. They're writing so terrible because they're not writing for you and me. They're writing for Vince McMahon. I think a lot of the everything that's not WWE, there's a lot of that in there that the performers are are trying to get buzz going, get critical because it's not just him anymore. It's not just an observer. There's a whole social media world out there that's parroting the same thing. And yeah, I think it's. I think his. Uh, I think his subjective uh, critiques and criticisms have been a tremendous influence on the style of today. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're uh, like somebody that listens to Between the Sheets, and, you know, I was just on there last week talking about 1984 stuff. It's like, especially when you read those early observers, it's so funny because not only is Dave more opinionated, about stuff and you know as you know they say on the show the observer was still a fanzine then you know it wasn't it wasn't a quote-unquote trade journal you know for a lot you know if you want to call it that yeah but you know he's certainly much more opinionated and um negatively and positively about stuff but like you read things and it's like you think sometimes you think, are we watching the same thing? And again, because it was one person's opinion, you know, like it shaped this narrative, not only sort of like what's quote unquote good in the ring, 
but you know, it's like how many people, you know, um, look down historically until relatively recently on like Dusty as a booker because Dave just didn't like Dusty. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, you and I have just had... discounted discounted Southern wrestling in particular in Memphis in general because some of the people that were talking to him, Ric Flair, Bruiser Brody, probably Jerry Hart and others, hated that stuff, hated it. And he parroted what he was being told. They were influencing him. And so he doesn't really have any appreciation for it. He looks negatively because they're reading his stuff. He's just agreeing with what he's heard. He's been influenced by them, and I understand that. But uh, as he's reporting this and writing this, more people just accept that as the truth. When it wasn't the truth, it was uh, two or three people's opinion that uh, well, this this is the one that gets me. This is the one that I think historically you can really point out uh, so many times because this falls upon the area that I grew up in, continental wrestling. All right, so you've heard Mark, I'm sure, many times that continental wrestling was well really going downhill, and uh, they brought in Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman. Ollie dangerously to book the territory. And though they weren't there very long, they really brought that territory back strong, had some good stuff going on, and then they quit abruptly or, or whatever happened there. And then it went right back to the dumpsters. Is that basically the narrative you've always heard associated with that? Yeah, and and I, as I'm sure you're going to say, it's funny now with their with the light of hindsight, like how flawed um that is on a number of levels if if only because we know now that like eddie gilbert and paul Heyman have been like decade were like decades long sources for dave and and uh you know yes, and matt exactly. and matt you know and matt watch when you look at that too that again I, again this is your you know, this is your home base and certainly one that I've become a lot more familiar with over the last couple of years. But, you yes, know, that that narrative is demonstrably wrong. I mean, you can, it is absolutely not true. I mean, that may have been critically what he reported and critically how he told it, but it's just factually wrong. Uh, you know, maybe in their opinion, you know, as, as Paul Heyman and Eddie Gilbert fed him and other news, not just him, but other news, everybody that listened, quite frankly, the, the story of the behind the scenes. Look, they were captiv captivating people. I mean, you, you can't get in the orbit of Paul Heyman without being intrigued by his charisma and his intelligence. And, and Eddie Gilbert was very much the same way. These are very captivating people. And the problem is, you know, from an, from a disassociated third party that actually just sits there and watch what's happened, you, you can unbiasedly see that, well, you know, you're kind of being fed a bill of goods here. It's, it's not, it's, it's not actually as that's not the story as it actually happened, well, but it's just what, it's just one of those very interesting things. And I, it makes me wonder how much of like real history is kind of the same thing where whoever was the person that wrote it down was, you know, influenced by, uh, biased 
source. And so now we look at some historical event way back in the past, we have a totally skewed version of it. You know, I especially think back in like, you know, medieval times and stuff. It makes me wonder, well, how much of that exactly is true, you know, to source? Because I can see how just in the, something as simple as and as goofy as professional wrestling is, how, how the narrative can get skewed, especially when you only have a few people reporting it. You know, it's a very small base of, quote, journalism that, that, that's covering it. Well, there's a reason that there's a phrase called that says history is written by the victors you know so that's definitely you know we, we've talked about this on the show before but when you when you start when you look at sort of you know the early history of the observer like you can now tell who dave's sources were you know whether he's admitted it in the past or not but you can definitely see his his opinion is shaped by the people he was friends with or sources with and shaped by the people and sources he didn't have you know I, you know it's it's so glaring you know how little coverage there used to be of the fullers and that's partially because that's how they wanted it but you know, it's like only in the last couple of years when, when you, and again, Ron's told his side. So you have to take that into account too. But, you know, it's like, you know, this is the thing we've, we've talked about this before. And one of the first things that really opened my eyes about the observer was, you know, just how incomplete Dave's obituary of Bob Armstrong was. Oh yeah. I've called, like, I called that was one of my pet peeves. Huge. I mean, he literally, literally ignored the area he was the most popular in, had the most success in, co-owned. If you didn't know anything about Bob Armstrong, you'd think his he stopped wrestling in Georgia one day and showed up years later in TNA. I mean, that's or Smoky Mountain rather, and showed up years later. To, like he completely skipped years, years of his career. Uh, I think again, out of a bias for against uh, Southern professional wrestling, it's just not his thing, and he wouldn't want to waste time with. It. Because to him, I'm sure in his mind, it's unimportant. It's not important. It's a minor, minor league territory, despite the fact that Bob's best work uh, was there. He was the biggest star there for the longest period of time. Co-owned a percentage of the company. But I guess it's not important enough to be a footnote in his obituary, huh? Yeah, but it's, you know, again, it's, you know, I've said this repeatedly. It's like, you know, how exactly did Dave not put Roy Welch in the Hall of Fame the first year? Let alone the fact that he's, like, never been on the ballot. Yeah, again, it's just just a, it's a, I don't think there's, you know, I say there's a bias because I don't know if it's it's like a, uh, implicit bias or an explicit bias on his part i think it's just a blind spot i think it's just he is i mean let's face it he knows a lot about wrestling history let me don't take that away from him for one second lots more than more than me much more so but there are blind spots he has and that's one of them so you know uh i'm glad to see roy welch get on the ballot i wonder how successful he's going to be on there because if Don Owen is in and Roy Welch is not, that's a problem, I think. I think it's a real problem. Uh, but we'll see. I guess we'll see how well, it goes. I, I vote 
I vote therein, so you know I can tell you though he'll have at least one vote. So, well, theoretically, if I still have the ballot next year, you know that'd be. But you know, again, it seems like a lot of stuff in recent years is, you know, do certain historians do enough research to influence the voters? And you know, admittedly, you know, I haven't been voting for the longest time. But it's like, you know, you look at how many more people have ballots now and what they watch or don't watch and what demographics they're in. And you wonder about, you know, historical candidates anymore. And it's, you know, you know, does there need to be an actual sort of different hall? Of, like, does there, do there, does there need to be a Hall of Fame committee? To 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 look at, well, I mean, not only just guys from the '70s now, but certainly you know, the, you know, Enrique Torres and, you know, guys like that, who, you know, it's like I I worry now that like if there's not footage of people, that like a certain percentage of the voters just aren't even going to bother, even though as a voter you should do your research. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I think the, uh, I think the availability of like newspapers dot com has has been a blessing to to historians of all kinds. Uh, so I kind of think there is hope for that because so many people like uh, are really digging back into that stuff and discovering things that that we've lost altogether. I mean, I think there's probably. Uh, at least a few very viable historical candidates out there that we've just never really talked that much about because we just there just hasn't been that availability to research. I think within maybe the next ten years or so, I think it's going to go actually the the other way, Mark. I think we're going to discover some more things actually than than before. I'm I'm at least hopeful about that. I could be wrong, but I'm I'm kind of hopeful about it. Well, speaking of things that have been rediscovered, um. One of the reasons that we were talking about doing the show again was the quote-unquote reemergence of some of this southeastern footage that that Crispy Lettuce slash Armstrong Alley got and put on his YouTube channel. And this is, you know, from from the heart of your childhood because it's, you know, 82, 83 southeastern, including... You know, the what gave you uh, what arguably is now your most popular podcast of the week, uh, the heel mustache from Bob Armstrong. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I tell you what, I, I'm supposedly, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but Ron Fuller claims he's uncovered a lot more, that he's uncovered quite a bit more. Somebody, uh, he, the story he, tells is that he actually had sent to him some VHS tapes, just, you know, old school, something that one particular person had taped that's going to fill in a lot of the gaps we didn't have. And so I hope that's true. Uh, I don't know one way or the other whether to believe Ron is does believe in Ballyhoo, quite frankly. He can exaggerate a little bit, but I'm anxious to see. I mean, I'm, I'm very anxious to see if, in fact, that's true. 
because the 1983 stuff, I never expected that. I, I thought by now everything that could have turned up would have turned up. And then lo and behold, uh, Armstrong Alley finds who knows where on the list somebody had from somewhere. He finds this. We haven't seen this stuff since it aired. And, I mean, we got Buck Rugley coming out of a box. We got uh, Bob Armstrong, more Bob Armstrong Hill material. We got all Bob slapping Brad, all this stuff that hasn't been seen since literally it aired in, in the spring, early summer of 1983 has now shown up again. I was very surprised. I, I would have never, I would have bet against it totally. So who knows, you know, because sometimes it's just that one older fella, you know, that don't follow, ain't online very much, certainly not on social media. Somehow he gets wind of it and he's like, yeah, you know, I got a stack of tapes over there. Hadn't watched since, you know, the 1980s. Go look through them and lo and behold, there it is. I was uh, talking to somebody not related to wrestling uh, about stuff, but we are talking about Doctor Who. And famously, um, for the longest time, a lot of the stuff from the 60s was thought gone because, you know, much like uh, here, you know, tapes weren't saved. You know, tapes were reused because it saved money. And over the years, they found episodes of Doctor Who from the 60s in all sorts of weird places like TV stations in Australia, TV stations in Nigeria, just saved their copies of the show when they saved them, you know, when they aired them in like 1966 and, you know, put the can of film away and nobody ever thought about it. So, like, it's true in... Uh, it's sort of the same principle. It's like you, when you think we've exhausted what we're going to find, somebody magically turns something up. And you know there are certain people out there that probably do have stuff that they've just, they didn't, like, they may have been tape traders back in the day, and they still have everything. You know, it's just they're lapsed fans, so they don't care about it, or... They're saving it to maybe do something with on their own, or it's somebody, just, yeah, somebody got it in a state sale and they're not interested in wrestling, but they got a box of old tapes there, you know. Well, I mean, you know, we talked to you about it before, but you know, you wonder what exactly Dave still has in his house, yeah. you know. You know, I mean, he's, he's you know, he was tape trading in the 70s, so you wonder if you know this stuff, like how much of this stuff does he still have knowing Dave, he probably does, but like, you know, does Dave have like, you know, missing, well, you know, missing, you know, he probably, you know, he could very well have like a lot of Florida stuff that like, isn't in common circulation because he was a big Florida guy back in the day. You know, he could have Memphis stuff since he traded with so many people from Memphis. You know, it's just nobody knows until they actually go to the effort of trying to find it. That's I'm not, yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I'm sure he does. And if you've ever seen a picture of his office, it could be right over there under that old printer that don't work. And you know, it, <laughs> who would know? I uh, <laughs> well, trust me. Ever so, you know. Trust me. That's that's how stuff is in my house now. It's like I was. No, talking, please, Mark. Please just don't tell me that. <laughs> no, it it it's. Um, the the house is very pack ratty. I'll say, like I know that I was trying to find a newspaper article that I wrote 
back in the 90s. And, like, I know I have a hard copy somewhere. I couldn't tell you where it was. So, like, I asked Bix to see if he could actually, if it would be easier to actually track down on newspapers.com hmm. rather than me trying to find it in the house somewhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I was uh, doing the same thing. I, I got some uh, some digital scans of some some old articles and stuff too, and I thought, well, you know, I wrote a ma- I wrote an article for this magazine one time. I wonder, you know, I never saw it in print or anything, but I wonder if I could find. It. You know, I'm like, I just gave up. You know, I'm like, eh, whatever. Well, <laughs> I was telling somebody. I mean, I pretty much have all of my computers still in this house from like when I had an Apple II. And like 1985 to like the computer we're recording this on now. It's like, you know, I have the computer that like I wrote when, uh, you know, when I wrote for WrestleManiacs in the 90s. Those columns are all still on a floppy disk here somewhere. Like my copy, you know, it's all based on the technology at the time, too. I think the first three issues of the magazine are somewhere in the house, but they're on zip drives. Mm-hmm. And like. Who's like, you know, do they still make zip drives that I could get that stuff off of? Other than the fact that I still have my computer from like 2001 that I could boot up and and try and get it off of. One of the other things uh, I I wanted to talk about before we go, speaking of that Mid-South footage and a podcast that you did recently was a big, long history of the original midnight express because like i said i was just on between the sheets last week and we were talking about uh 1984 and the beginning of the last stampede angle but which was like the first big thing um that version of the midnight express did that sort of put them on the map but you you know spent a couple hours detailing the long history of the Midnight Express before they became the Midnight Express that we all know. Yeah, I actually ended I actually ended that podcast with the uh, first time Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton team up. So yeah, yeah, there's a there's a huge, rich history of the Midnight Express that just never gets told. I mean, they were highly decorated in multiple different organizations, top draws, champions, and and uh, nobody ever. Uh, they always start with, hey, Dennis Condry and uh, Bobby Eaton and Jim Jim Cornette ended up together in Mid South and ta da, Midnight Express. No, no, it was much, it was much more than that. Uh, Randy Rose doesn't ever really get the credit he deserves because of, you know, people became most familiar with him, saw him the most after he came back after a long layoff in the AWA where Dennis Condry and Randy Rose held the world tag titles. And then they, you know, made that mid, very brief midnight express versus midnight express feud on uh, TBS there with, with uh, NWA WCW. Uh, and that's the Randy Rose they see. And, you know, he's nothing really remarkable about that Randy Rose, but boy, when he was much younger, he was, he was really good. And Norvell Austin certainly is somebody that I've, I've always felt never got his true, uh, do and still still don't. I think he's a mu- much much better and much much more important wrestler than he's ever been given credit for. And Dennis Condry's just, I mean, he's just been great since forever. And uh, yeah, it's time that that it's time that story got told. There's there's a lot more there's a lot more richness and depth to the uh, Midnight Express than 
than people think. I mean, even up to the point of Ron Starr and Honky Tonk Man Wayne Ferris being full-fledged members of it at one point. Nobody ever tells that story. Nobody ever says, oh, my favorite version of the Midnight Express was Randy Rose and Ron Starr. That's because they have no idea that version even exists. Or Ron Starr and Wayne Ferris. Well, they don't even know that. Well, I think it's time that, that story got told. Yeah, Norval Austin is one of those people that I think he's, you know, I, I know people have tried to sort of to get him to do appearances of podcasts and he just hasn't done them. But, you know, there's a guy who has such a rich history that, like, would be fascinating to hear him discuss, you know, starting as, like, being, you know, Sputnik Monroe's partner, you know, up until, you know, being in Knoxville, being in the Midnight Express being in the PYTs and all this other stuff. And it's, you know, that's a guy that most people probably don't even know about, but he had such an, a really varied and interesting career. Yeah, the original Junkyard Dog. Yeah, that too. But, uh, you know, it's just, that's the thing. There's so many of these guys, you know, I mean, we have some footage of, of Norway. Well, we probably didn't have a lot of, of it in his prime, Unfortunately, you know, it's just that's, you know, we're talking about history. It's like, you know, if you're, you know, guys of a certain era, you know, like if, he, you know, if your career peaked in the 70s and, you know, you were winding down at the beginning of like the cable era, like that's all people remember you as. And, you know, I'm sure there's like a handful of guys who people kind of remember of as, oh, that guy was famous, but I never really got to see him at his prime, you know, that just unfortunately, you know, have their, are, are sort of tarnished by that. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, maybe more and more of that stuff will become available, certainly with internet and streaming services and you know, YouTube and just personal websites and stuff. I, I hope a lot more. I mean, if you, if you think about it, a lot more stuff has come out over the years. I mean, I never thought we would see the last Bible of Atlanta. I never thought I would see the, you know, the 1983 Hill Bob Armstrong again. I never thought I would see, you know, wrestling film predating, you know, Joe Stecker. But yet, here it is. We, we've got it and we see it. And I think more and more will come, come available as, as, you know, people, you know, just uh, come across it, find it and, 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 um, and uh, get it digitized and, and put up. So it's it's actually more actually more comes out than uh than I think what we we know and, and and that stuff will too I think. Well, it's funny. A couple years ago, I was at a convention, and I talked at that show to Cornette and to Dylan, who would know. I said, "Is there more footage of the of the first Crockett Cup?" Because you know they put out. Mm-hmm. You know, they put out the two-hour tape, which is, you know, mainly just highlights. And, like, they both said, they both didn't think so. And J.J. is in the office at that point. You know, and then, like, probably, like, not a month later, you know, WWF, you know, puts out, like, four hours of footage from the show on the on the network. And it's like, I guess it existed after all, even though <laughs> people involved didn't, didn't necessarily know it existed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bret Hart, Tom McGee. I mean, it just goes on. Yeah. Um, so we've mentioned it a couple of times, Carl, but why don't you tell everybody about the When It Was Cool Network? 
Okay, so uh, that's my website. My wife and I uh, run a website called whenitwascool.com. Uh, we have a lot of uh, pop culture articles, retro pop culture is what we specialize in. But our, I guess our main event, for lack of a better term, is our podcasting network. Now, we have a lot of free shows, and I hope people can uh, download those. So we're everywhere you would expect a major website to be. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, and you name it, we're, we're there. Uh, we have our flagship, what it was cool podcast. We have uh, Dragon King Dark, which is uh, right now going through a series of the darkest moments in pop culture history. But uh, if you want everything, and I hope you do want everything, uh, that's available on our Patreon feed, and that helps run it. I'm not, I'm not running a website looking for a handout. I'm not here saying, will you support my little vanity project with your Patreon? No, you're going to get something. We believe in giving you product. We're giving you content and lots of we're probably one of the largest content providers on patreon quite frankly we put out a show almost every single day and by almost every single day i mean almost every single day we've got a new show uh, that comes out you get your own little feed you can plug it in to say well carl i get my podcast off itunes and you know i don't know how to do all that jazz but it's super simple uh you plug it in and boom you got it right there i bet we've got i bet we talk about something you'll like don't like comic books well that's just one one day out of the week stick around for the pro wrestling or the pop culture or the movie reviews or the just life general discussions and look we got a very positive place we're all about positive positivity we're all about having fun we're all about getting a break from life so i hope everybody will check us out over at when it was cool.com uh, just do yourself a favor. Just stop by and look. I'm not going to cost you anything to stop by and look for a minute, download a few free shows, see if we're for you. Because I'm betting if you'll give us a month, uh, you'll say, wow, you know, I'm glad I added this to my rotation of stuff, a lot of variety here, and a lot of positivity. Except for the Heel Mustache podcast. Except for the Heel podcast. Yeah, we don't, tell, we don't talk about the Heel Mustache podcast. Heel Mustache podcast is... Probably best left alone until you've been there for a minute, and then like you're just mad one day, and you say, "What's this all about?" And you plug it in, maybe cathartic in some sort of way. So, I'll say everybody has their own experiences with uh, fast food or dealing with dealing with dumpies every day, and so that's a great place to hear about hear about having to deal with that kind of stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thanks, Carl, again for for carving out some time for us. I know you've been, I know your day job certainly keeps you busy. Uh, plus, running this 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 vast empire of yours, so I'm glad we could we could. It's funny we talked about doing this a couple of weeks ago, and had we done it then, we wouldn't have been able to talk about the Moon Knight show. Yet. No, that's true. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I readily admit up front, I'm the worst podcast guest you could possibly have. It's virtually impossible for me to find a carve out a moment and time for anybody but uh mark i've known you for a long long time and so you're you know tops on my list so uh it's it's not because i don't want to it's just it's hard to find time but uh thank you for having me i, re I really do appreciate it I'll, I'll yeah maybe next time there's something we've been talking about doing a show about probably for months now either on your network or on here we didn't get around to doing it at this time. You know, it's a good thing because Moon Knight was fresh. So, but uh, there's like something very obscure in in comic book history that 
uh, ties into a series that you did on the website before. Uh, I won't tease anybody, but uh, if you're a hardcore DC history nerd, it's definitely something you're going to want to hear us talk about when we ever finally get around to doing it. And that's the tease for today. Outstanding. Absolutely. Thanks again, Carl. Um, everybody listen. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's Between the Sheets, uh, make sure to do that. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I love talking about Mid-South, and that's mainly what we talked about, a bunch of 1984 stuff. So go over there and check that out. Check out Carl's stuff, and we'll talk to everybody next time.